Welcome to the TESFE podcast with FE editor Stephen Exley. Hello there. And me, Sarah Simons. Right, Stephen, what's going on in the world of FE this week? Plenty, Sarah. It's uh, maybe the summer, but there's uh, a lot happening. Still. Oh, it never stops, does it? <laughs> Now, um, this week, in fact, it's quite a timely bit of coverage, I think, on SEND provision. Because, of course, while most people have a pretty good idea what they're going to be doing come September in terms of staff and students, we take an in-depth look in this week's magazine at national specialist colleges. It's amazing the amount of uncertainty that still exists, you know, really mid August for what's going to be happening come September. So a few weeks ahead of the start of term, there's a, a very high proportion of learners in a number of colleges who haven't had their funding confirmed yet. Uh, we've been talking to one particular student who thankfully is starting at college this September, Alicia Jackson, who's starting at the Royal National College for the Blind. But it's taken her two and a half years to get there. And she actually ended up spending a year, a full academic year out of education uh, because her local authority wouldn't agree to send her to a national specialist college and wanted her to go to one in the local area instead. It's just staggering, really. This all goes back to the send reforms doesn't it the send changes a couple of years ago which gave local authorities put them in charge of send funding and yes. the, the education health and care plans centering around this isn't it this this one document that's written by education health and care and the student to work out what's the best route for the individual and so it's a collaborative document and it sounds wonderful in theory but in practice, to try and individualise the requirements and the, the requests, which have massive impact on people's lives, it, it's, it's, it's sounding like quite a, a challenge from more of an administrative and funding point of view. That's right. I mean, you have the uncertainty for the individuals involved. So obviously for your, uh, especially your younger uh, teenage learners who haven't been able to get a good education or a suitable education, you know, taking into account their uh, specialist needs in their local area. And they've found a national specialist institution that provides them with everything they want and yet they've got the anxious wait to see if they can get the funding to get there but then as you say from the other side it's not easy for the institutions as well there was one college that we spoke to this week which told us that they were still waiting for 53 percent of their intake to be confirmed for september i mean how do you run a college on that basis yeah. it's uh, it's you know, nigh on impossible to plan your staffing, to plan your timetable, plan your curriculum. It's uh, hats off to them, really. So the chief executive of the Royal National College for the Blind, Lucy Proctor, says that many students have to be rebuilt once they arrive. She says if someone's been neat, not in education, employment or training, for a year, unnecessarily, you need extra time. And people shouldn't have to spend the life savings on a solicitor to battle for the right place for their child. So let's hope that once the learners have got to the most appropriate provision for them, that that rebuilding can be as valuable as, as they hope it's going to be. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lovely comment in there from uh, the learner we mentioned earlier, Alicia Jackson, and uh, her mum 
recalls when they first went to visit the Royal National College of the Blind a number of years ago, and she says, the very first time we went to the college, Alicia said to me afterwards that it had been the first time she ever felt normal. Yeah. And her mum says, that was that, she just had to go. So, yeah, if you don't have the money to pay for the experts, for the uh, you know, legal team to give you the support to make it happen, it's, it's just not possible for everyone at the moment. It's a real problem. Let's continue having this discussion about EHCPs and about the, the situation surrounding students with um, learning difficulties and disabilities. Absolutely, hugely important topic. Right, so let's move on to our next piece, which is about scholarships, and it's written by Will Martin. So he's been talking to um, people involved in this uh, quite innovative new um, scheme of student support at Christ the King Sixth Form College in London, where they've managed to get set up a scholarship scheme, which quite unusually is funded by a private equity firm. Mm. It's an interesting story how it came about, where um, one of the uh, top people at the company concerned, Metric Capital, he uh, came across a young man through a mentoring program who then ended up going to the college and introduced him to the principal and uh, they hit upon the idea of setting up a scholarship scheme paid for by the company. And it's no small amount of money involved as well. £15,000 of scholarships to work. So if one of the students at the college who's from a deprived background and really wants to go to university, they then if they're approved for this programme, will get £15,000 to support them through university and you know, help them to achieve their ambitions, which, I mean, on the face of it, it's a, it's a very noble um, idea, but it's a very unusual arrangement to have uh, such a small number of students at one college. Yeah, the private equity firm has given 135000 so far, and these three scholarships are awarded every year, one to a student attending each of the three colleges that make up Christ the King. The collegiate principal, Jane Overbury, likens the approach and the mentoring to the show Dragon's Den. Yeah, it's, uh, so it's not just about you get the proof of the programme and you get the money. The aim is that there's an ongoing dialogue between the student and John Sinek, the uh, person who set the programme up at Metric Capital. So they have ongoing conversations, they have to explain how they're doing in their studies and also what they're using their money for. And in, in return for this, they obviously get the financial support, but they also get the introductions, the contacts and uh, that kind of support that, uh, that you wouldn't normally be in receipt of unless you happen to be very fortunate. So it's, I guess it's a case of widening the opportunities and aspirations of uh, young people. Yeah, it's an interesting setup. and uh, I haven't encountered this before. Have you, Stephen? No, I think this is the first scheme of its kind. Obviously, many colleges have their own systems of additional financial support, but I've certainly not come across... Uh, a uh, case where you have a uh, yeah, large private firm giving such a large amount of money to students at a particular college. So it would be fascinating to see what impact it has in the next few years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right, let's move on to the next one, which is a piece by Dawn Ward, who's the Chief Executive and Principal of Burton and South Derbyshire College, and she's writing about soft skills. 
At Her College, um, they have set up what they call the Skills Promise. Now, what, what interests me about this is this is largely inspired by the World Skills competition. I know Dawn's a big supporter of World Skills, and uh, through that and just thinking about what you need to succeed at an international skills competition, they kind of adapted the curriculum at the college accordingly to rather than just focusing on, on your getting the you know the technical proficiency and the qualifications that you need it's really focused more on the soft skills and the other things that you need that give you the edge in competition yeah i think the idea is that the skills competitions kind of replicate the real life jobs market the suite of 14 soft skills is applied across our curriculum in a tailored way to meet the needs of the industries our learners are striving to secure a career within. 14 soft skills, Stephen. Have you got 14? I, I, I can't claim that I have that many, I must be honest. How about you? I'm not sure. What, resilience, ambition, creativity, initiative, leadership, teamwork? You've got all those, surely. Hungry. <laughs> Thursday. That's full. <laughs> Don't say dopey. I wouldn't dare. Yeah, this is it. I find this really interesting. The college looks like it's consciously embedding them into the curriculum. And I'm interested in how it's measured. What worries me about measurement of soft skills is how subjective it can be. I, I feel like it might depend on the, the qualities that that particular teacher or assessor already has and however objective you can try to be when looking at soft skills there's got to be a bit of bias in from your own from your own skills and your own point of view yeah that's an interesting point actually Sarah it's kind of uh, dependent on the individuals involved really and what what they offer in terms of the soft skills too so it's uh, quite difficult I think to give all 14 of these uh, soft skills to everybody in a uniform fashion because that's not really how the teaching process works. The 14 soft skills, it reminds me of, can you remember Carrie Fisher used to say in um, in interviews when somebody had said something awful about her, she'd say, it hurts all seven of my feelings. It reminds <laughs> me of that book. Clearly it's been thought through and it's working. So good luck to really? her. Okie doke. Now, finally... I've got my column, Anta. I'm on about disengagement with education. I went to a posh school. I got an assisted place. If our younger listeners are wondering, it was in the 80s when the government gave some money to poorer folks who wanted to send the kids to private education. And I got one of those. And it was a really good school. I had all the privilege that an expensive private school brings but the school just kind of it wasn't for me I felt like I understood about the difference that money could bring quite early and I didn't I didn't like that inequality the whole thing put me right off education I was lazy and I was disruptive and I was a pain in the arse I'm sure you'll find that very difficult to believe Stephen shocked Sarah I'm just shocked but it took me a long time to get back into education and stop feeling like feeling like I was thick and I was 35 when I started back um, and I did an open university course which kind of led the way to me doing more teaching stuff and that's even though I was working as a screenwriter I was working with ITV and BBC and I was doing quite well I still felt like education's not for me that's for clever people 
this has really shaped your um, thinking now when it comes to the. Uh, well, it's been the big issue for many people in the sector for a long time, hasn't it? GCSE research. Your column makes the point that the same applies here, really, that if you have a bad time at school and then you end up having to take this qualification again when you're not really interested in it and keep being effectively told that you're a failure again and again and again that it does put you off education for a long long time and you know saying the column repeated failure leaves you feeling like a failure of course it does the point i'm making is that my massively privileged education left me with a distaste for learning the people who are being made to reset the GCSEs, they yeah. might not have come from such an outwardly positive education as me. How much more severe could the impact be of kind of traumatising them by asking them to sit something that we know we're setting them up for a failure? We know that we're putting them in that position and we're, our hands are tied. The impact could be very long and very difficult. And I think the situation is only going to get more difficult from this summer onwards, really, when you think that this summer is the last time students will be able to sit the legacy GCSEs in English and Maths. So if you've not got the uh, magical mark that you need to get your good pass or uh, or your standard pass, as it's called now, under the new system, then you've got to not just retake the qualification that you failed already, but you're going to have to start from scratch and take the new version of the qualification, which is intentionally designed to be even more difficult. And, yeah, if you're feeling disengaged with education already, that's really not going to help. And I don't understand the political decision on this. I've said in the column, I believe that almost everybody in that Outer Commons is there because they want to make a difference, they want to make things better. And consequently, I don't understand this choice that those people have made that is going to negatively impact thousands and thousands of, of young people. I don't get it. I don't get it. And it doesn't sit beside what I be- the good things that I believe politicians do. I can understand the argument intellectually in the sense that you, if you think that all young people should have the opportunity to get to the a good standard in English and maths, and if your GCSE is seen as your benchmark for that, uh, that all young people should have the opportunity to get there, that's that's all well and good. You can't really argue with the principle behind it. But if the knock-on effect of that is that you end up, like we had last year, with pretty much three-quarters of people taking those subjects, not getting the uh, mark that they needed to get the pass, then it's... You know, you're condemning so many thousands and thousands of young people across the country to, you know, feeling like a failure and having to go through the whole operation all over again and probably with the same outcome all over again. Something's got to give and I can only hope that we're getting to the point soon where this is going to be addressed in a serious way because of all the issues that we cover at TESS uh, in the FE sector. I think this attract such strong emotional responses from people who just see the effect that it has on young people. Absolutely. I, I get that the, the people who make these decisions aren't teachers. They don't have the the perspective that, that we have. But if you're looking at the evidence that three quarters of people who are taking these resets are failing, isn't that enough to tell you that it's maybe the, not the right policy? We were never arguing for people not to have the opportunity to take 
GCSEs. We were arguing for professional judgment. Nobody was ever saying, stop giving people the opportunities. We were just wanting the right opportunities for the right students. One day, Sarah, one day. We have to live in hope. Yeah, keep my fingers crossed. Well, it's been a bit chirpier than last week's, hasn't it? This has been the TESFE podcast with Stephen Exley and me, Sarah Simons. Join us again soon for all the FE news and views. Thanks for listening.